CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Donald Trump says Tuesday night was a complete victory. Dude, you lost the House of Representatives. Come on. How delusional can you get? What do you say, everybody? I say it was a good night for Democrats and a not so good night for Donald Trump. Good to see you today. Here we go. Uh, Two days later, Thursday, November 8th. How about it? Great to see you today. Hello, 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 and welcome. Welcome to the Bill Press Show, live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Here we are with all the news of the day. Still uh, talking about the returns, because returns are still dribbling in from Tuesday. But, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, yesterday after our show, a lot more news to talk about as a result of that. An incredibly uh, wacky, zany, I guess you could call it a news conference, or some kind of a crazy clown show at the White House lasted an hour and a half. Uh, President's news conference in which he, uh, uh, on the one hand, said, I want to work with Democrats. On the other hand, said, if they dare open one hearing or one investigation, then it's going to be open warfare. And meanwhile, it was open warfare on several members of the media who ask him tough questions, which he doesn't like. And he, the White House even yanked the press credentials of one of those reporters, Jim Acosta, from CNN late last night. And then, an hour after the news conference, Donald Trump fired Jeff Sessions. We knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. We didn't think it would happen quite that fast. And he put an enemy of Robert Mueller now in charge of the Mueller investigation. Whoa. Told you. Lots to talk about. Big day today. Get on it. Get on Twitter. Send us your comments. At BP Show at BP Show. Uh, we'll jump right into it. But first, this is the full court press. 
Jessica with other stories making try news. something with Peter's voice. Well, I'm working on it, all right? We've had a long you, couple of days here. You are such a brave soldier. All right. <laughs> Let's get it done. All right, so we're going to talk about some election results. Let's go to Harris what County. What happens when you go to New Orleans for the weekend? Look, I'm not saying that New Orleans is to blame. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. I'm here, though. Uh, out of the election results that we talked about, and we will continue to talk about, here's one that got missed. Harris County Juvenile Court Judge Glenn Devlin down in Texas yes. lost his reelection bid. So yesterday, after he lost, he showed up to work and he did his job. Every single defendant that came in front of them, he let them go. Oh, no. Every single one of them. Oh. In fact, all he said to them was, do you promise not to kill anybody if I let you go? And they said, yeah. So they, then he just said, <laughs> you're free to leave. He just released everybody. He said this is what the voters wanted. They didn't want him anymore. They didn't think he was doing a good job. So he figured, F it. He was just going to go to town and let everybody go. Of course, the person who actually ended up winning the race uh, put out a statement said this could, in fact, endanger the public and was not a very good idea. Uh, particularly when you're a judge and you're dealing with some pretty hardened characters, uh, that's not... A, Don't think yeah. he's taking it very seriously. Uh-uh. Why? By the way, you got, uh, big, you got big plans this weekend? Uh, well, I'm going to be doing uh, the McLaughlin Group on Saturday, and I'm going to be appearing with Reverend Al Sharpton on MSNBC on Sunday. Well, I don't know if that's big plans or you, not. You th- well, I would maybe have a backup plan because oh. apparently NASA is warning us that three large asteroids Uh-oh. are going to pass very, very close to Earth this weekend. The mm-hmm. first one is going to come on midday on Saturday. An asteroid is going to come 861,000 miles to Earth, too close. which is very, very close. There's a second one that's going to be coming that's going to be about 3 million <laughs> miles away. But then the final asteroid, Saturday evening, is going to miss us by just 237,000 miles. No. Which, that's... by the way, that's closer than the moon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um... just saying, you might want to have a backup plan. Well, what I'm afraid of is little pieces could break off, you know, little chunks here, here and there, right? Uh, Well, thank you for the warning, Peter. I will, uh, if I am outside at that time, I'll wear my hard hat. This is the Bill Press Show. Indeed, it is open warfare now between Donald Trump and the media at the White House. How is the press going to respond? How is the nation going to respond? And how many more reporters are going to lose their press credentials? Hey, what do you say, everybody? Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. Good to see you today. Happy Thursday, Thursday, November 8th. How about it? Two days after the uh, midterms, and uh, still a lot of races haven't been decided. We've got a recount down in Florida, maybe a second recount in Florida. Uh, could be a runoff coming in Georgia. Don't know the results of that yet. Still no official results in Arizona. And uh, by my last count, there are some uh, 14 House seats that are still uh, undecided. Uh, we saw a couple of them picked up yesterday, all Democratic gains. Um, but um, we're going to be sorting out the tea leaves of this uh, uh, of this these midterm elections for quite a while, uh, not just to know the results, and then we'll be sorting out for a long time exactly what it means. Certainly means a new direction for this country. 
a new direction for the United States Congress, a new reality for the for Donald Trump and the Trump White House that they're going to have to deal with, uh, and maybe even some new initiatives uh, between the Trump White House and Democrats in the House working together uh, and Republicans reluctantly coming along. Who knows how it's going to turn out, but what we saw yesterday did not give uh, any great signs that there will be any cooperation with the Trump White House because, again, Donald Trump wants it all his way or the highway. That kind of sums up. We've got lots and lots to talk about today. A lot of news happened since we were last together again uh, in terms of Jeff Sessions getting fired and this uh, big, uh, ugly news conference at the White House yesterday, uh, in addition to catching up on all the returns. That sums up uh, what we have to talk about today and what you will want to comment on as we join you and you join us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. As we all come together on Free Speech TV, all around the TV set nationwide on Free Speech TV and on the radio, Indiana. Sorry about Joe Donnelly. Big loss, and uh, I'm afraid uh, Donald Trump made a difference when he went out there a couple of times. Um, um, but we salute the people of Indiana on in statewide on Indiana Talks. And in Chicago, celebrating a new governor, J.B. Pritzker. Hello, Chicago. Hello, Chicago suburbs. It is uh, good to see you and good to join you on the great WCPT. Uh, yes, indeed. By the way, one very, very sad note, uh, yet another mass shooting in this country. You probably heard at a country western bar out in Thousand Oaks, California. It's the very northern part of uh, Los Angeles County. Uh, as you're heading up toward Ventura County, so I think it's the last town, last city in uh, L.A. County before you go down the hill uh, into Ventura County. Uh, at a country western bar last night, a gunman opened fire, uh, killing 11 um Patrons of the Country Western Bar, uh, one sheriff's deputy getting shot and killed uh, by the gunman as he tried to, um, to, to to rush in to help these people and to get the gunman, and then the gunman uh, himself was killed. We haven't, we're not sure yet by uh, whether by police gunfire or whether he turned the, his gun on himself. Uh, but of course. Um, we don't have to talk about it because this has nothing to do with guns. No. Gunman enters bar, opens fire, kills 11 people, sheriff's dep- and a sheriff's deputy, but it has nothing to do with guns. Congress won't do anything. The president won't do anything. Nobody will do anything because, again, uh, we can't talk about guns anymore. All right. So let's go to the big uh, – they're calling it the Wednesday afternoon massacre. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, uh, the question came up at that news conference, uh, asked by Major Garrett of uh, CBS News uh, to the president whether or not he had any uh, plans for changes in his staff or in cabinet members that he wanted to talk about. Uh, The president said, well, I'll talk about that later. He says, well, how about Jeff Sessions? Can you tell us right now that Jeff Sessions is going to be okay? Uh, And uh, the president just said, uh, no, I'd like to talk about that a little bit at a later time. Yeah, the later time turned turned out to be about an hour later when Jeff Sessions turned in his resignation. Uh, I thought Jeff Sessions made it, he wanted to make it very, very clear to the world uh, that he did not resign. He was fired because the open letter in his letter of resignation, the open sentence is, at your request, 
at your request, I am submitting my letter of resignation. Uh, Jeff Sessions, we learned, got a call from John Kelly, the chief of staff, yesterday morning saying, you're toast, Buster. Get your letter in here. You are out. Uh, and Sessions left the Justice Department last night, turning it over to the acting attorney general, who is now Matt Whitaker. We'll talk uh, more about him in just a second here. As he left the building, uh, Jeff Sessions, the staff of the Justice Department, was standing in the courtyard uh, outside as Jeff Sessions left the building, uh, greeted by applause by the um, Justice Department employees as he walked out. Yeah, here he is. So he turned around, shook hands with Matt Whitaker, hopped in his SUV, and he rode off into the sunset, so to speak. Uh, you know, you almost, not really, you almost want to feel sorry for Jeff Sessions? No, not really. I mean, look, Jeff Sessions knew, should have known what he was getting in for. Uh, as my grandmother said, used to say, you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. He was uh, a Donald Trump loyalist. And he proved that Donald Trump has no loyalty to anybody but himself. Jeff Sessions, the the first and the only senator to endorse Donald Trump when he was in, in the 2016 Republican primary. Remember, Jeff Sessions, first one out there. Nobody else followed him. Everybody else attacked him, uh, including, of course, Lindsey Graham and, and Ted Cruz, who are also running for president, uh, and uh, Ron Paul, Rand Paul, rather. Uh, but Jeff Sessions was there. Then he gave up his Senate seat to become uh, attorney general. Yes, Donald Trump appointed this man who was deemed so racist he was rejected by the Republican-controlled Senate for a federal judgeship. Donald Trump nonetheless appointed him attorney general over the Civil Rights Division, uh, over the entire Justice Department. And then as attorney general, he did everything that Donald Trump wanted, everything including uh, locking kids up in cages, ripping babies away from their parents at the border, suing California over its uh, clean air uh, rules, suing California and other states over uh, and sanctuary cities over their immigration policies, welcoming refugees and immigrants. Uh, he trashed all the community relations deals that have been made between police departments uh, and cities around the country. I mean, he... he gone out after the, to to enforce federal marijuana laws, even in states that legalized the recreation use of marijuana. He was the loyal acolyte of Donald Trump, doing everything he wanted, except on the Russian investigation, where he was told by senior Justice Department officials, you can't be in charge of this investigation because you yourself had so many meetings with these Russian officials. It's a giant conflict of interest. You just got to do the right thing for the for the good of the administration and step aside. He did that. Donald Trump never forgave him, and he's been out to fire him for the last year and a half. And basically, I said that he would, and we knew that he would at some time. Um, so he is out, and Donald Trump, this is the other part of the massacre, Donald Trump, he's, the target here is really not Jeff Sessions. The target is Robert Mueller in the investigation because... Uh, at, at the same time that he fired Sessions, 
uh, the president put Matt Whitaker in as acting attorney general. Uh, Matt Whitaker, who is a former federal prosecutor, uh, federal attorney out in Iowa, was a CNN contributor for a while. And as a CNN contributor, Max, Mac, Matt Whitaker has said that the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt. It's a giant fishing expedition. There is no collusion, he says. There is no obstruction of justice. And he suggested that the attorney general should cut the funding for the Mueller investigation. Now, he's in charge of it. And Rod Rosenstein, who had been in charge, who's a big supporter of Robert Mueller, who had been as deputy attorney general when Sessions recused himself, Rod, Rod Rosenstein in charge. Uh, but Rosenstein is out of the picture now. So the target here clearly is Robert Mueller. All I got to say is, you know, Robert Mueller is very, very smart. Uh, I think Donald Trump would fire him in a second if he could or have. And by the way, if he asked Matt Whitaker to fire him, he would. We always thought that Rod Rosenstein, if he asked Rod Rosenstein, Rosenstein would say, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and the president would fire Rosenstein and hire somebody else. If he asks Matt Whitaker to fire Robert Mueller, Robert, Matt Whitaker would. And he very well may be. So uh, I don't think I have to give any advice to the special counsel. But nonetheless, my advice to Robert Mueller is get your job done fast, dude. You, I think the clock is ticking. Get your report ready. Get your report out as soon as possible and make it as tough as possible because one thing Robert Mueller, in his favor, he does now have some friends in the House of Representatives who will be in charge, who will protect him uh, as much as they can. So Sessions is out. Matt Whitaker is in as acting attorney general. The president said he will not be the new attorney general, of course, because we need to save that slot for Lindsey Graham who's been auditioning for it and was certainly auditioning for it on the day of the Kavanaugh um, hearings. Uh, Lindsey, Senator Graham, I should say, uh, calling, telling uh, Fox News, I think it was yesterday, he was not interested in the job and wouldn't take the job. B.S. Lindsay, I, I think Lindsey Graham would love that job. And again, I think he was auditioning for it. Um, so... There's a Jeff Sessions thing, and that followed this news conference, which really, really got ugly. I mean, uh, it was so unbelievable. The president, totally delusional, starting off by saying he considered this. In fact, he started off by saying how, how crowing about how well Republicans did on Tuesday. The Republican Party defied history to expand our Senate majority while significantly beating expectations in the House for the midterm and midterm <laughs> year. Yeah, well, <laughs> midterms, Mr. President. Yes, right. Defying history. In fact, he said later on, he considered this a complete victory. Complete victory. I, again, had I been able to be there yesterday, I couldn't. I was doing something on the BBC at the same time up at the Capitol. Um, but... <laughs> I would have stood up and said, dude, you lost the House. It's not a complete victory. There are two houses of Congress. You were out to keep control of both of them, okay? You succeeded in one. You lost the other. That's not, this is not a partisan statement. That is not a complete victory, okay? Not, no way, no how. Not to mention, and we'll be talking about this with our guest today too, all the other House seats that Democrats won, 
all the surprise Senate seat in Nevada, seven governorships, over 300 state legislative seats, on and on and on. At any rate, hardly a complete victory, number one. The president also said, which must have come as a slap in the face to the Republicans in Congress, that he thought, um, he actually said this, he thought it, were probably, it was probably a good thing that Democrats won the House because he said, you know, uh, I think now we'll be able to work with them. So all in all, uh, it was good that we lost the House. Yeah. Mm. Put a slap on, Pat Ryan, on Paul Ryan. Don't let the door hit you on the butt as you walk out the door, Paul Ryan. And then he went even further and said, and by the way, I did what I could to help, but there's some Republicans who didn't want my support my endorsement, and they lost, and I'm glad they lost. He actually reveled in the fact that there were Republicans who lost because they didn't accept it, he says. He didn't say my support. They didn't accept my embrace. Peter Roskam didn't want the embrace. Eric Paulson didn't want the embrace. And in New Jersey, I think he could have done well, but it didn't work out too good. Bob Eugen, I feel badly because I think that's something that could have been one. That's a race that could have been one. I guess amazing. Calling them out by names and mocking them because they didn't take his embrace, including from Utah, a woman who is considered a real rising star, little rock star of the Republican Party, Mia Love. Yeah, but uh, he didn't feel the love. I saw Mia Love. She'd call me all the time to help her with a hostage situation, being held hostage in Venezuela. Uh, but Mia Love gave me no love. <laughs> and she lost. Too bad. Sorry about that, Mia. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, Mia. Boy, just dancing on their grave. So flippant. Oh, yeah. Uh, another one. Barbara Comstock, right across the river here, Virginia 10. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Northern Virginia is where most of the people who, li- who work in Washington live, right? Uh, they, know, they know Donald Trump. A lot of them are federal employees. They don't like Donald Trump or they work in the Congress. They don't like Donald Trump. Barbara Comstock, loyal Republican, who votes with Donald Trump, by the way, I'd say 97% of the time, if not 100 but she didn't want Donald Trump to come down there and give a and do a rally for her. Uh, so Donald Trump says, too bad, Barbara, too bad. Barbara Comstock was another one. I mean, I think she could have won that race, but she didn't want to have any embrace for that. I don't blame her. But she um, she lost, substantially lost. Yeah. Too bad, Barbara. Too bad, Mia. Too bad. I mean, God. Just, uh, you know, I thought Jake Tapper uh, later, after, uh, yesterday afternoon on CNN, kind of summed it up. I mean, it, it really, as Jake says, dancing on their grave. He, he danced on their graves. Uh, he said because they didn't embrace him, they lost. And he was flip about it. He almost seemed to be happy about the fact that Congressman uh, Mike Kaufman, a Republican from the suburbs of Denver, lost uh, because he didn't want the president's support. I've never seen a president take delight in people of his own party losing. And the only thing I can say, compare that to, 
is, you know, some of the works of Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese. I mean, that's how gangsters act. <laughs> yeah, that's how gangsters act. And, of course, the other thing that happened at the news conference is the hostility, Donald Trump's hostility to the press corps really, really came out. In fact, it looked like maybe, looking back, that he only held that news conference for one reason, um, that he wanted to change the subject and he wanted to have a fight with the media. Uh, and he started fights with several reporters and treated people so disrespectfully, so rudely, including telling uh, April Ryan uh, from uh, Urban, Radio Net Urban Radio Network uh, to sit down and shut up. I'm not going to call on you. I didn't call on you. Sit down. Shut up. Shut up. Um, he also, of course, went after uh, Yamich, uh, her last name? Alcindor. Alcindor, rather, uh, from uh, PBS, who asked him a question about, you know, um, when you call yourself a nationalist, some people hear white nationalist. Donald Trump, in response, calls her a racist. That's such a racist question. Honestly, I mean, I know you have it written down and you're going to tell me. Let me tell you, that's a racist question. It's not a racist question. That's a very legitimate question. That word nationalist is, to people on the alt-right, a dog whistle. They know what he means. White nationalists. And then, of course, uh, the um, most hostile exchange was with uh, Jim Acosta. Uh, Jim Acosta, so uh, from CNN. The president calls him, and right away he says, um, okay, here we go. Jim asks him a question about why do you call the caravan an invasion when it's really not? The president doesn't want to answer. And then Jim tries to follow up with, a follow-up question about the Russian investigation. Uh, this is when the president tries to cut him off. Jim won't release the microphone, uh, and it, uh, you hear this first back and forth. Um, um, Mr. President, me. that's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if go. I may ask, on, on the Russian investigation. I that's well, I enough. I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's enough. Had, pardon me, ma'am. Um, Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if go. I may ask, on, on the Russian investigation. And are you... Uh, and then the president turned around, went to Peter Alexander, Peter from maybe NBC News. Peter, Alex, uh, Peter Alexander said, "Mr. President, I've traveled with Jim Acosta. He's a good reporter." And boom, boom, boom. And then he wanted to ask his question. The president says, "Well, I don't care much for you either." And then he turned back to Jim Acosta uh, and uh, insulted him and CNN at the same time. I tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Uh, yes. At which point uh, CNN put out a statement saying this president's ongoing attacks on the press have gone too far. They're not only dangerous, they are disturbingly un-American. While President Trump has made it clear he, he does not respect a free press, he is a sworn obligation to protect it. A free press is vital to democracy and we stand behind Jim Acosta and his fellow journalists everywhere. That wasn't the end of it. Then, by the end of the afternoon, Sarah Huckabee Sanders put out a statement from the White House saying that because Jim, that they were taking away Jim Acosta's hard pass, denying him access to the White House when he came back about 7 o'clock yesterday evening to join Anderson Cooper on 360 the Secret Service at the gate, Northwest Gate, where I go in all the time, uh, refused to let him in 
and took his hard pass away from him on orders of the President of the United States. We have never, never seen anything like that before. And not only that, they lied, the White House, and accused Jim Acosta of assaulting this young intern whose job was to pass the mic around from reporter to reporter. Look at the video. I've looked at it many times. I watched it live yesterday. She comes up, tries to grab the mic. She grabs the mic. Jim Acosta does not let go of the mic. She grabs his arm two or three times trying to get the microphone. He does not let go of it. He is not Corey Lewandowski. He did not assault that woman. Uh, in fact, I want to play that again because you can hear him say, as she's trying to take the mic away. Um, um, Mr. President, me. that's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if go. I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation. I did, that's well, I enough. I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. that's enough. Yeah. Mr. President, I had one other question. Pardon me, ma'am. Pardon me, ma'am. Right. In the middle of that. Very threatening. Very threatening. Pardon me, ma'am. Yeah. Uh, while Donald Trump is telling April Ryan, sit down and shut up. Right. Let me just say something. Uh, this is this is like open warfare. And as a member of the White House press corps, we will not stand for this. And we should not stand for this. This is an attack on the basic First Amendment rights, which are fundamental to this country. Uh, and I would hope the American people see exactly what this tyrant is trying to do, the same thing other tyrants. I mean, this whole thing that he uses, enemy of the American people, right is right out of, right from Stalin, right from Hitler. That's what they call the media, and that's what Donald Trump thinks of the media as well. Uh, Major Garrett, who was at the news conference then went to New York to appear with Stephen Colbert, uh, Major uh, also saying it's time for all of us in the White House press corps, all journalists everywhere, and all who believe in the free press, to stand up to this and lock arms. Now, because there is a collective sense that the president is not play-acting with his attacks on the media, and maybe means it, and those of us who attend rallies know his supporters react to it, sometimes in ways that are so hostile as to make us concerned about our own physical safety, that there is a more of an impetus to sort of lock arms just a little bit and say, Mr. President, if you're going to come at us that aggressively, we are going to lock arms because collectively the First Amendment is what unites all of us. And in the room and in the moment, we at least have to express that to you and have you take it seriously. Indeed. So, uh, if you will, uh, engage more than ever. Uh, lots and lots of news, as we said. Uh, and more results from the midterms we'll get into with our guest as well and update you on some of the House races, some of the Senate races what it all means uh, and whether or not there will be any effort to work together on the part of the Trump White House to work together with Democrats. Democrats have been willing and all and were over the last two years. They were willing. At, we've had so many members, Democratic members of Congress in here indicating that they were ready to go forward and work in a bipartisan way, uh, not giving everything away, but work toward getting a deal on immigration reform, on prescription drug prices, on infrastructure, on climate change, on middle-class tax cuts. But you know what? It takes two to tangle, two to make that deal. Uh, the big question is, will Donald Trump ever, ever uh, be willing to work together with uh, anybody toward anything? Two years with the Republicans in charge of Congress, they didn't accomplish anything except one big big, giant tax cut 
uh, which benefits only the wealthiest of Americans, a tax cut they didn't want to talk about this election year because it has proven to be so unpopular. Uh, lineup of guests, Eliza Collins is going to join us at the very end of the show. Uh, she covers Congress for USA Today. Bring us up more than we can expect there in terms of working together and investigations. Um, Kyle Learman from When We All Vote, talking about turnout, which was huge, huge, historic in these midterms. Who voted and when and where? And Lauren, we start next with Lauren Gambino from The Guardian to take a look again at the results of the midterm elections now that we know more about them. It is the Thursday edition of the Bill Press Show. Your comments again on Twitter at BP Show. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. And on the Thursday, November 8th, the Bill Press Show rolling right along here. Good to have you with us today. Uh, lots, <coughs> pardon me, lots more to talk about uh, when the uh, according to the midterms. And we're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, our good friends over at the Teamsters Union. Great men and women there under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. Check out their website at teamster.org. We salute them, certainly thank them for their support of the program. Lauren Gambino joins us in studio from uh, The Guardian, uh, who has been covering these midterms, uh, well, for the last two years, I guess. Yeah. Lauren, uh, very good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. And things are kind of shaking down a little bit now. We had uh, one more um, Senate race decided since we were together yesterday morning. That is John Tester. Uh, the last time we heard from Tester, uh, he was saying, you're damn right we're going to celebrate Wednesday. And on yesterday, he did meet again with his supporters, uh, thanking them and uh, just um, rejoicing in the fact he was going to have a third term in the and Senate. And to my staff, many that are in this room, um, uh, there wasn't a day that didn't go by for the last two years that these folks didn't think about what we needed to do to make sure that uh, I was able to be able to be here for a third term. And so, uh, so that one, he won, and Joe Manchin won. The other three red state Democrats, Clay Murkowski and Joe Donnelly and uh, Heidi Heitkamp, uh, did not. There's still a couple of uh, Senate seats still undecided. Yes. Um, Arizona. Mm -hmm. that, uh, Arizona, which looks like they're saying it could take weeks <laughs> to get to the final results. Uh, Thousands of ballots are still out there. Right. Uh, it's within a percentage point, isn't it, it's between Kirsten Cinema and Martha McSally? Incredibly right. close. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they'll want to count every ballot. Nevada there. was a pickup. Uh, we were hoping that Tennessee would do better. Did not. Beto O'Rourke, uh, we're hoping would do better. Did not. Uh, so the Democrats, Republicans end up, what, with 53, 54, maybe? I think we'll have to see what happens in Florida, though. I think they're that's pretty right. confident. They'll, um, d uh, Republicans are fairly confident that's going to go their way. Well, um, well recounts in Florida are... They're toss-ups, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could go anyway. We don't have a good history of recounts so far. Well, the one thing we know, if they can't, they can't get it done fast, the Supreme Court will just jump in and decide for them, right? I guess. Yeah. That went well for the Democrats the last time, so... As soon as I saw there was going to be a recount in Florida, yeah, right. I just started getting flashbacks. So we get the Brooks Brothers a rally again. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
So it looks it certainly will be a divided government because when you move over to the House, uh, the only question is what the final margin will be uh, in the House, right? Yes, and we're still waiting. Um, California especially could give Democrats even larger boost in the in the House. The, the latest count we have is, um, we just double-checked here during the break, uh, at the present time it is 223 Democrats. Uh, you need 218 to to uh, control the house so I mean that the, the, the leadership the control of the house is not going to change the question is what's the margin uh, to 197 uh, Republicans um, the way things are projected right it, uh, Democrats could it looks like could go up to 232 uh, which would be a pickup of 37 seats and people said that they might get anywhere from 20 to 25, maybe as many as 40. So that's really the upper end of that range. And that would leave uh, the, the House at 232 Democrats, 203 uh, Republicans. A pretty solid cushion there for, uh, for Democrats and for the next speaker. Yes, I think, and like you said, it's the upper echelon of what they thought they could get. So that would be, you know, that would be a really good night by all counts for for Democrats. And you know, certainly in the in the final closing weeks, it was a question of, oh, is this going to be a nail biter? You know, are they going to take the House by one? And mm -hmm. certainly, that's shown not not to be the case at all. Right. Um, the the one of the big races you mentioned, the California races, a lot of them are not uh, settled. Uh, one that is, is Dana Rohrbacher, who's been there forever, um, uh, really on the extreme right wing of the Republican Party, uh, questionable about, he was considered to be Vladimir Putin's guy in Congress, right? He's so close with so many Russian connections and has so been so supportive of Putin, uh, more so than maybe even Donald Trump. Um, uh, Harvey Ruda um, said, who's a Democratic opponent, Said, you know, even the people of Orange County, very conservative Orange County, wanted somebody who's a little more, a uh, little less extreme. The whole issue all along has been that Dana Rohrbacher's been an extremist on the extreme far Army. right. And we believe that the vast majority of voters want somebody in the middle. And once the votes are counted, we're confident that's exactly what the outcome will be. Right. Hardly it is. Hardly Ruda. So that's a big pickup for, uh, for the Democrats there. And Democrats also pick up Daryl Issa's seat. Yeah, those are big pickups. And I think, you know, maybe in another at another time when Russia wasn't so front and center. Well, clearly, Dana Rohrwacher has been able to, you know, keep that posture towards Russia and keep winning. But with with everything happening in Washington, I yeah, I think he had a really good case to make. Um, Harley Ruda had a yeah, he, he made his case and. You know, there were a lot of California Republicans who thought uh, Dana Rohrabacher was going to hold on to that seat, and in the end, it didn't happen. Uh, and here on the East Coast, um, there are very significant gains uh, in Congress. New York State, New Jersey, um, Virginia, right? I, th I saw this morning, I've got to double-check this, that there's only one, maybe in the entire Northeast, one Republican congressman left who is up in Maine, and he's just holding on. I think that seat is one of the ones that hasn't been called yet, but uh, really significant gains in the Northeast. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. If, if that statistic is right, I hadn't realized it. Just one, wow. I mean, it, it does sort of show you the geographic split across the country and where the sort of liberal 
whole you know hot spots and where the country's moving in these sort of more suburban areas. Right, but at the same time, um, you know, the Democrats picked up uh, a seat in Kansas. Right, Sharice uh-huh. Davids, right, Native American woman, lesbian, Kansas, <laughs> uh, winning a House seat in Kansas. It is incredible. It is incredible Um, that and, you know, her that district, she it is a suburban district. um, And I think that, again, shows that even in a state you traditionally think of as to now be these slices that, you know, distinguish themselves. And maybe we are sort of seeing a realignment of the parties when you have people in this conservative spot who just no longer see themselves in the Republican Party. They, you know, they look at Trump and they don't that's not their party anymore. Well, it's a classic district with a right suburban district where Republicans, um, where Donald Trump was able to get some college-educated suburban Republican women, even though they didn't like his tone maybe or his personal history toward women, vote for him because he's a Republican, he's going to bring about change. They did that two years later. They regret doing it. I saw the note yesterday that um, suburban women, 53% of them voted for Democrats, Democratic candidates. 47% did so in 2014. Okay. So that's that's the constituency, the kind of a new constituency right. for the Democratic Party. And it does, you know, get at that question they've been asking themselves for the last two years, and now it will, you know, they'll have to answer it in the next two years ahead of 2020 is what's your strategy ahead of the presidential? Do you do you try to court these, you know, sort of middle of the road suburban women who might be turned off by, you know, a Bernie Sanders style progressive platform? Um, or, you know, do you try expand your base, you know, run a candidate more like in the mold of Andrew Gillum or um, I, that's going to be, I feel like, the big question going forward when we start to see all these 2020 candidates announce. At the same time, there were some uh, some uh, in, in, in the midterm uh, results that really make you scratch your head, or at least me. Um, Chris Collins, up in New York, indicted for insider trading, re-elected. Uh, Duncan Hunter, in California, indicted for using taxpayer dollars to pay for these lavish vacations for him and his wife. Uh, Re-elected. I mean, these are people who are going to go to jail, and they're going to have to have another special election. What's up with people? Why would they vote for them? You know? I, I was thinking about, I mean, also, if you look at Montana, uh, Greg uh, Gianforte yeah, was re-elected. So I just, it does seem like Trump has, or maybe we were headed this way anyway, but Trump has definitely made it more okay to have these scandals hanging over you. You know, it's... People will still vote for you. What was totally unelectable, even probably a decade ago, is just clearly not the case anymore. Um, and we saw it cut both ways. I mean, Bob Menendez hung on in, in New Jersey despite those attacks. Um, so I think we're just seeing, yeah. Uh, That's this, right. This, yeah, Bob Menendez is another example. Someone charged. <laughs> the difference in his case is there was a jury. He was in, uh, found not guilty. Yeah, no, certainly, and clear, that is a clear there. distinction. So, clear distinction, but still, someone who did have some charges filed against him, right? And then maybe in another. I think you're right. There's a good point that Donald Trump is sort of, if if he could, just barge on, despite the fact that 20 women have accused him of sexual assault, 
and he just denies it all and just barges on. That's sort of the M.O. that he has said now this is the way we do it, and this is acceptable. And, you know, and not just women, he's got tax. You know, there's so many different areas that he's sort of just, so many different scandals he's just blown through. And so, and, you know, a lot of Republicans are looking to him, taking that as their cue. They ran campaigns very much in the Trumpian mold, and that's Mm -hmm. maybe just one of the the permutations of of a Trump presidency. Right. Um, It's important, I think, to look to get the full picture of the midterms, Uh, not just look at the House and the Senate, which we just have, but the governorships were very, very important, too. Uh, And there, um, Democrats made some significant gains. I think it's really important, the Michigan uh, governorship uh, with Gretchen Whitmer there, obviously out in Wisconsin being, you know, two states that Democrats lost, thought they'd hold on to in 2016, obviously incredibly important to the math in 2020. Um, Yeah, they could not be happier about picking up those seats and having Democrats in in the driver's seat uh, headed into 2020. Uh, And Kansas is another one. Kansas is, yeah. And I mean, I think there as well, there was interesting because uh, the Democrat had actually picked up a lot of Republican endorsements. There were people in the state did not want to see Chris Kobach, you know, bipartisan group in the state did not want to see Chris Kobach be the governor of Kansas. So I think there was a lot of relief, even from Republicans, that he's not going to be the governor. Right. Uh, but when you add up, so if you look at, uh, let's say, Pennsylvania, Ohio didn't work out so well, but Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Kansas. Um, we think of the coast as a blue wall, the Pacific Coast or the East Coast. Uh, that's a that's a solid blue wall right in the heartland, which which again will prove to be very important for 2020, especially when it comes to reapportionment. I'm sure all the uh, yeah, the DNC. I'm sure will be making this argument, but they really did. I think after 2016, have you know. A, cr- a crisis of confidence. They had not been investing in a lot of these other states, and they really saw across the map that they needed to get out there and, and work in states like Kansas. They really needed to rebuild Democratic brand out there. Um, and I think you're seeing some of that payoff. Um, I think, yeah, I think that they'll say this is the result of of our investment and, of course, of widespread grassroots activism. You know, that was a that played a huge role across the country, seeing people. Uh, who really hadn't been involved or activated before getting involved and sort of replenishing these Democratic field offices, you know, in far-flung areas that Mm -hmm. national Democrats rarely go. Uh, uh, Chairman Tom Perez was uh, our guest yesterday in studio, and I I really have to congratulate him and salute him for he has brought back, which really was Howard Dean's uh, creation when he was Democratic national chair, uh, and his his concept, his dream, his strategy, a 50-state strategy, as he called it, that every, and as Tom Perez expresses it, every zip code is important. Uh, and so they were active at every level, um, state legislative, governor's races, uh, and then congressional, of course, and Senate, uh, every in every state, everywhere in the country. And it certainly paid off. I mean, uh, between he, he was telling us between last year and this year, they have flipped 333 state legislative seats from red to blue. Uh, now, still a long way to go, but again, in terms of looking at 2020 and reapportionment, uh, that means um, 
there were some 900 seats lost, 950 seats lost under Barack Obama's term during that eight years. So it got back, you know, a good chunk of them already. And with more, yeah, Yeah. more than a third. third, Yeah, yeah, right. And it's important. I think they realized Republicans were so, um, you know, they went state by state and they built up these pretty, you know, impressive um, standings within the state. And they were able to pass a lot of things at the local and at the state level, a lot of, you know, a lot of their. Union style bills that those really took off um, over the last decade. You saw, you know, just a handful of very conservative measures that they were able to spread throughout the states, and there was really no Democratic base in a lot of these states to to block that. So mm-hmm. I think you saw. I think Republicans would like to, or Democrats would like to repeat that no. model. Uh, yeah, Democrats lost, uh, got got their eye off the ball. They they just started stop worrying about the states, stop paying any attention, and they suffered badly because it's, it's, now they're starting to build back. One other thing we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, I'd love to get your take on some of these. Um, there were not only uh, important um, state legislative, governor's races, congressional races, and Senate races, a lot of important initiatives on the ballot this time, um, all, all across the country in many, many different ways. Uh, Peter, this one makes us happy, but in on uh, with pot, starting with, uh, there were three. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Three states moved up. Um, Michigan, by initiative, recognized the uh, legalized the recreational use of marijuana. That becomes the tenth state to do so. Uh, now it's Michigan and the District of Columbia. Uh, two other states. It's it, it, I can't believe that not that we're still talking about medical marijuana, but uh, we are. Not every state has gone there, but this time by by initiative, Missouri and Utah. Two red states adopted Utah. Utah medical marijuana legalized medical marijuana. They become number thirty-two and number thirty-three uh, that uh, have done that. Um, three states here again: Peter, Utah, uh, by initiative, uh, expanded Medicaid under Obamacare. Um, a lot of Republican governors just said we're not going to be part of this refused to accept the expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act in their states. Um, on Tuesday, three states expanded, voted to expand, to adopt, be part of that program, again, under Obamacare. Th- listen to the states. Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska. Again, three red states. We want Medicaid. Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska. Um, maybe the most exciting one in the nation, Florida, with the uh, about felons not being able to vote, uh, they adopted. They needed a sixty percent turnout. That was a rule. That's a law in Florida. Not turnout. Uh, vote, at least sixty percent to adopt that. It, they got sixty four percent. And Democrats are already talking about how this will reshape twenty twenty because that could conceivably restore. They said about ten percent of, of Florida's population. No, ten percent. Think about that. How close the Senate race was, how close the governor's race was, this is 10% of the voting age population in Florida could not vote because they were ha- had a felony in their past. That I'm telling you, Andrew Gillum would have been elected, Bill Nelson would have been reelected if, if this had passed two years ago, not this year. Just look at Virginia, what happened when, yeah, when they had their the rights restored. I mean, Virginia at this point is... 
not so much a purple state anymore. Right. <laughs> it's a yeah. blue state. Right. So good for Florida. That was a very, very important move. Um, Massachusetts passed an initiative expanding rights to uh, and 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 um, confirming rights for transgender uh, Americans in Massachusetts. So these initiatives were like all over, right? We've talked about pot. We've talked about Medicaid. Talked about felons, transgender rights. Uh, in Maryland, in terms of voter registration, there were a lot of moves. Maryland adopted same-day voter registration, uh, which is, I think, huge uh, part of making making it easier for people to vote. Now, if you got to register, didn't have a chance to register, you just moved, you can walk in, register on Election Day, and vote on Election Day. Yeah, Maryland has been one of those states that's making it a lot easier to vote. Earlier this year, I think, or maybe last year, they um, expanded early voting, so you can register and vote mm-hmm. you know, the week prior. Um, yeah, so they're, they're one of those states uh, that's really taken, I think, a lead on trying to make it easier to And vote. also in that, in that same vein, uh, Nevada voted uh, to make it uh, automatic. Um, when you go to the DMV, you're automatically registered to vote, right, which um, is one of the big reforms that a lot of organizations have been asking for, that if you have any contact with the state government, that automatically Register puts you on the register, voter registration rolls. Uh, and one of the districts, we've talked about reapportionment a little bit, redistricting, moving to, there were three states again that said from now on we're going to put redistricting, drawing the new maps in the hands of a commission, take it away from the legislators, which um, California, my state, did several years ago. Uh, and those three states now will have a redistricting commission, Michigan, Colorado, and Utah. My God, Utah's becoming a progressive state all of a sudden. They even elected that liberal, Mitt Romney. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, they did. Mia Love lost. um, Mia Love lost, right. Uh, I think, though, that's a state where you had a lot of uh, women organizers on the ground. A lot of, uh, they were really active. They were really pushing these ballots, um, ballot initiatives especially. So I think that was a win for, you know, local grassroots activism. Right. It's just amazing how much of these, how, how how widespread these initiatives are. And the final one I saw is on minimum wage. Arkansas and Missouri both pass initiatives to uh, enact the minimum, to, to raise the minimum wage. Not high enough, but I think it went up to 12 in Arkansas, not 15. Uh, but still, the federal government, this Congress has not raised the minimum wage here. Again, at the state level, these are two more states that joined in. I don't know how many states now have a statewide minimum wage. California is 15, um, minimum wage, Arkansas, Missouri. And I guess the final one, in, in California, there was a big initiative, which people were surprised it passed. There was an, I mean, that was defeated. There was an initiative to overturn a gas tax. They adopted this gas tax uh, a couple of years ago to pay for improvements to public transit and to highways in, in California as one of Jerry Brown's measures, uh, a, a move to rescind it was actually on the ballot, and that failed. Like Something like 55% voted against it. In other words, they were saying, we want to continue to pay gas taxes because we know we need them and they're important public uses for that. So um, it, uh, th- these, when, you, when you collect all these initiatives together, I mean, it's, the impact is huge. State after state after state. Yeah. And they're all Democratic priorities. You know, they're all, and I think that's, yes. it was, I think, yeah, on the issue of ballot initiatives, Democrats kind of 
cleaned up. They were, you know, these were all ones that Democrats supported. Um, so uh, the political landscape is really different today than it was two days ago. Yeah, we do not have a uh, we do not have a one party rule here in Washington. That's going to have obviously huge impact for Trump's presidency. Um, I, you know, we we saw Nancy Pelosi speak yesterday. We saw Trump endorse Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the yeah, House. That was weird. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so who knows if they're going to be able to actually work together? I have a feeling this is all um, you know talk up from. Uh, it is quite. It's a question whether or not. Nancy Pelosi wants Trump's embrace. And uh, I'm sure Donald Trump will say, if she didn't want my embrace, well then, too bad, Nancy. Too bad. Too bad. You're going to lose if you don't take my embrace. I Sorry about she, that, Mia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If she takes her, his embrace, she could very well lose. Thanks so much. All right. Great Thanks to see you, Lauren. Me. Thanks for coming in. Kyle Learman joins us next from this When We All Vote. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Donald Trump says Tuesday was a total victory for Republicans. Hey, dude, you lost the House. Remember (laughs) that. You lost the House of Representatives. Big time. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we are on a Thursday Thursday, November 8th, the Bill Press Show live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. With all the news of the day, we're still uh, sorting out the results of the midterms. And then wham, Donald Trump slams us with a uh, an unbelievable clown show down at the White House yesterday, uh, a.k.a. news conference, uh, and follows that up uh, as if he had to jump on his own story by firing Jeff Sessions all in one day. Help! Got to run fast to keep up with this, uh, but that's our job here on uh, the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thanks for joining us as we come to you coast to coast, um, online, on the radio, and on television. Uh, and uh, taking a look, particularly at uh, back at the midterms, in terms of turnout uh, and efforts to get particularly young people, women, uh, out to vote. How do we do? Kyle Learman is the CEO of the great organization When We All Vote. Bill, thanks so much for having me on. Kyle, it's good to see you again. It's a crazy week. Thanks for coming in. It's been a crazy <laughs> week. We'll get right to it, but first there are yeah, a couple other little stories here that um, we wanted to, we wanted to catch up on. Absolutely. So, um, uh, I want to I want to shout out to Vice Vice.com, who uh, they took a look at the returns uh, of the uh, midterms, uh, and they put it out under the headline. Uh, the biggest assholes who lost. 
unfortunately, there are some assholes who won. Mm, Ted Cruz. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Oh, no. It's okay. Still no one likes him. Uh, that's right. He might have won, but nobody likes <laughs> yeah, him, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. But on their list of assholes, and this is not a bad list, um, I think we could agree on maybe all of these. Chris Kobach. Definitely an asshole. Don't you think? Yes. Tops the list. Yes. Right. Here's the guy who uh, has been screaming voter fraud, voter fraud, Secretary oh. of State of Kansas, gov- running for governor of Kansas. And he had zero, zero evidence of any voter fraud. Convinces Donald Trump to set up this bullshit commission on uh, voter fraud, which didn't find any voter fraud. So they got disbanded. So they disbanded the commission, right? He's an architect of voter suppression in Kansas and across the country, really. You know, not not pro democracy. Let's just put it that way. Right. And before he was part of this organization, Fair, which I've been tangling with always since I was working for Jerry Brown, I think a hundred years ago, right? As the anti-immigrant, uh, and of course they got their champion in, yep. in Donald Trump. So um, good. One asshole down. Here's another one, Scott Walker. Oh uh, man, did you big see, time? Did you see Trumpka's statement? No. He, so he put Richard out a Trump statement. statement. He just yeah. put out a statement. The only thing it said was Scott Walker was a national disgrace. Done. Period. <laughs> Period. Yeah. Very, very, yeah, good. The guy who, uh, uh, funded by the Koch brothers, fueled by the Koch brothers, becomes governor of Wisconsin. The first thing he does was take away collective bargaining from state employees, federal employees, and just basically declaring war on the unions. Uh, and um, unfortunately, um, was reelected. But not this time. <laughs> Uh, another one, Kim Davis. Yeah, down in Kentucky, she's yep. the county clerk who refused yep. to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples yep. in defiance of the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, absolutely. Good to see that one. Remember when Mike Huckabee went down there? and Yeah. Uh, anyhow, she's down. California, Dana Rohrbacher. Big one. Big, Big time. One. Big time. Yep. Uh, and you know, it, it, it finally caught up with him. Yeah, it was. I was always surprised that it didn't earlier, but you know, it's good. Well, to see, yeah, Orange County takes True. time. Fair, takes time. fair. And you then know, you know that better than I do. Right here, a little locally here, Dave Bratt. Yep, Virginia. The guy knocked off uh, Eric Cantor and then became a big time uh, corporate, uh, accepting all kinds of corporate Great. money here. And um, huge turnout in Virginia. Huge turnout. Huge turnout. Abigail Stenberger. The new congresswoman down there. Uh, we'll be right back here on the Bill Fred Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Donald Trump declares war on the media, especially on CNN, and rips. The White House credentials away from CNN's Jim Acosta. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Thursday, November 8th. This is the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us today, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, we're still trying to sort out the results of the uh, midterms. Uh, And on top of that, uh, since we were last together uh, yesterday, Donald Trump holding an hour-and-a-half news conference uh, at the White House where he declared complete victory for Republicans made fun of Republicans who lost, uh, said it was good that they lost the House of Representatives, and then went on the attack one by one against several members of the media. Disgraceful performance, ending up with one reporter from CNN losing his press credentials uh, last night, ripped away from the White House. 
Uh, and then on top of that, uh, didn't even digest all of that, have a chance to, to um, figure out everything the president has said and what it all means. He comes up with another headliner and fires Attorney General Jeff Sessions. We knew it was going to happen. Sessions knew it was going to happen. We didn't think it was going to happen all that fast. Man, uh, here we are trying to keep up with all of it. Kyle, Le- Kyle Learman joins us now from When We All Vote. Kyle, you're th- good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You were in uh, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about your efforts to uh, expand the voter rolls and voter participation. I got to say, it really worked. <laughs> it did. It did. Right? It was an incredible night uh, in terms of turnout for midterm. Um, we had historic, a, historic, really historic. Um, Thirty-one uh, as initial projections are thirty-one million more people voted in twenty eighteen than voted in twenty fourteen. Uh, that's, I mean, that's like a whole election, right? Another, it's yeah. a, it's a game changer. Um, and you saw enormous uh, increases amongst young people uh, in uh, twenty fourteen and and several other earlier midterms. You had about one in five young people uh, voting twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, projections this time are that thirty-one percent. Um, of young people uh, voted in this election. Um, so 10% increase across the board for young people, 18 to 29-year-olds, which is really important. Huge shout-out to the the young folks from Parkland um, who did incredible mm-hmm. organizing uh, in high schools and on college campuses uh, as well um, and sort of turned their tragic, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. horrible things that happened to them into a positive uh, into momentum across the country for and focused on voting, um, and also a good night on the ballot initiative front for yeah, voting across yeah. the country. You saw 1.5 million folks uh, have their rights restored in Florida. Uh, same day registration was passed in Michigan and in Maryland. M- Michigan too. I knew Maryland. Um, but yeah. Automatic voter registration was passed in Nevada, uh, and uh, no excuse absentee, which makes it a whole hell of a lot easier for folks to vote, uh, was also passed in Michigan. So great night in terms of turnout. Uh, great night in terms of ballot in it, on the ballot initiative front. But I'd also just say, you know, as great as it was, I think it shows we still have we still have a lot of work to do. Um, and we have to double down on our efforts that we made in terms of registration, uh, in terms of getting the information to people about voting, and in terms of making sure that folks tie the issues that they care about to voting and have that motivation to actually get out and vote. And so uh, we are not stopping. Uh, Mrs. Obama, our our co-chair, sort of said, now it's on us to keep this movement going. She tweeted that yesterday, Um, and it really is. We cannot stop now. We have to keep it going. We have to uh, double down on this work. We have to keep registering people. We have to keep talking to people about the importance of voting. Uh, The good thing, I think, about Tuesday night is that people saw the impact of the organizing work that was happening in states and cities across the country. That was not done in vain. 31 million people, that's a really big number. Right. Uh, And another way of looking at that, uh, the numbers that I saw that uh, total 113 million voted in the the midterms, which is 49% over 2014. Yep. Right. It's huge. Again, all ages, particularly. And and these are the first midterms where over 100 million people have voted. Yep. You know, so the midterms used to be the sleepers. Uh, And and look what happened with Barack Obama in 2010. We remember, sadly. Right. I I remember that well. (laughs) Yeah. People stayed home. Right. They didn't feel it was that important. Hey, we got the guy in the White House. So now we coast for four years. And then the midterms catch up on you and wham, right? Uh, and it used to be, I mean, the midterms were for old white men, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> not anymore. No, I don't, and not at all. And I think that one of the important pieces here too is 
the number one predictor of whether or not someone's going to vote is if they've voted before. Um, so now we've brought all mm. these new people into the system uh, in this midterm, young people who have That's actually the challenge is to keep them. come out for the first time, and now yeah. they're in the system. Um, and so they're already significantly more likely to vote in the 2020 election and in every other election in between that. And so um, it's incredibly important because um, it's already expanding the electorate for 2020. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, usually these midterms were sleepers. Uh, I think we can say that 2018 was different. Um, and, you know, I think there were a lot of reasons, but I think the folks who listened to your show, folks who volunteered, um, to make sure that they were knocking on doors, doing voter registration drives, sending those text messages, making those phone calls, that worked. Right. Um, I want to come back to, you said 30, uh, 31 million yep. young people. Or 31%. 31 percent. It's 31 million more people voted, 31% of 30, young people. That was the number I was talking about, 31%. Um, that's great, yep. but that's still low. I know, I know. I know. You know, what? Why it, it is it's it is low um, and um, first off shout out to Circle uh, the university uh, it's a at Tufts University they, they do all this analysis of, mm-hmm. of youth voting and uh, they were the one that put out that thirty one percent number um, you know I, I I don't have a good answer for you yet because I think that um, we have to dive into exactly what happened um, I'm heartened by an increase you know it's better um, I think we've got to take good for. Uh, Good for an answer here. Yeah. Um, and I think we just have to double down on the work. Um, I think it's, you know, as I said, the, the, the biggest predictor of whether someone's going to vote is if they've voted before. So when you talk about young people, you're starting from scratch. Um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in our K-12 through system, I, I wish in civics we, education, to make sure that folks get registered in high school. Absolutely. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on our college campuses to make sure that you're registering folks. Um, but then, you know, we also need a cultural shift uh, in this country when it comes to the way that young people think about voting and think about participating. And uh, we need to make sure that they tie, whether it's health, college affordability, education, whether it's, you know, child care payments, whatever it is, people need to understand the impact of their vote. And even though we went, we did so much work, yeah, clearly that message didn't get across to everybody. I mean, think about how, how excited... Uh, young kids are to get their driver's license, right? And, you know, if only yep. had the same level of excitement about... And I, I do... I, 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 you know, Nieces and nephews of mine who are excited because it's the first time to vote, right? I yep. can vote, and this time I'm going to vote for the yep. first time. You know, it, it, it is very exciting to be part of the process. Um, I, I just wish we could get every every young person to feel that way and be excited about voting for the first time mm-hmm. as getting behind the wheel for the first time and getting a learner's permit, right? And and again, as a society, as a culture, a lot of it has to do with with their parents, whether the parents vote, their family yep. votes, uh, whether they get that message starting out. They, maybe and, they went and, to vote with their parents when they were younger. Yeah, yep. yeah. And learn it in school that, you know, school just drilled into them, right? I took my, I took my 14-month-old uh, to vote with me, so she's starting early. Oh, all right. <laughs> Do you think she'll remember? I think she will. Yeah, we got, a, right. fo- we got a few photos. Did you put a little uh, a sticker? She had the I, I voted. voted sticker. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, but I, I, think, I think of four things when I think of voting. Education. Uh, access, so you know, ballot access. You know, there are a lot of college campus states that make it hard for folks to vote on college campuses. Oh, yeah. For example, yeah. yes, um, that's why the automatic voter registration and same day voter registration that passed is important. So important. Third is information. 
Uh, we have a crazy media environment where no one gets the same information, so we continually have to do everything we can to organize to get the word across about registration deadlines and getting out to vote. And then the fourth is the motivational piece, which is that the, the sort of people just understanding the impact. Uh, Mrs. Obama uh, said a couple times uh, in speeches, you wouldn't let your crazy uncle take over your Instagram feed. You wouldn't let your grandma pick your clothes. <laughs> Why would you let someone make decisions that are so much more important to your lives than that? Um, and I, you know that resonated with a higher percentage of people this time than it did last time. So that's progress, but we got a lot of work to do. So when we all vote is going to continue as you did not uh, pull, turn out the lights on. No, no, we did not turn out the lights. Um, you know, we are uh, sort of uh, we were in a sprint. We launched in July, July 19th. So we were in a sprint to get through Tuesday and do everything we possibly could to increase turnout. Uh, then uh, now we're in a marathon um, and we're going to step back and we're going to do a little bit of planning uh, in terms of what what can we do in the state and local elections. You know, you got Virginia coming up. You got New Jersey coming up in 2019. Um, obviously, what are we going to do uh, in 2020 and beyond? And so we're excited to be able to continue in a significant way. Um, as you noted, a lot of work to do still. Are there um, still as many efforts at the state level to suppress the vote, as we saw when President Obama was in the White House, I mean, there were 21 states, I think, or more that had various measures, whether it was photo ID yeah. or getting rid of uh, early voting or shortening early voting. I, certainly there are, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, you, we talked about Chris Kobach earlier. Yeah, um, right. You know, you saw— He'd go back to a poll tax. <laughs> yes. Um, you saw voter suppression tactic, tactics in Georgia— um, and, uh, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, on the part of the secretary of state who was running for governor. Um, and, uh, you saw, uh, actually Scott Walker was the architect of, uh, photo ID, uh, law in Wisconsin, um, that I mm -hmm. think was still on the books this time around. And yeah. so, um, you know, I think it, there, there are still tons of voter suppression things happening around the country. And so, uh, one of the things that we're going to be looking at more is how can we lend our voice and our, uh, uh, influence to helping increase access in a significant way in the long term. Um, do you think we will ever get to the point where, um, of Brazil, where you must vote, or Australia, <laughs> Australia. where you vote? Fine. I mean, I I love that idea. You vote or you pay a fine. You know, I I, I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you never know. Nobody uh, that nobody that I know is pushing it except no, me. I, I haven't heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I was actually thinking about this the other day because I, I was wondering if that was legal at the state and local level, and I don't know. So I'm going to do a little digging and see if that yep, is. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll come back and let you know uh, what I find out. But no, I, you know, I don't see that happening immediately. Um, what I think is, is happening is that our culture is sh shifting into a place where people better understand the importance of voting. Um, and hopefully that solves the problem and we don't have to find people. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, you would hate to think it would come to that, right? But uh, it's worked in other areas. I mean, some people watch their speed limit because they don't want to have to. <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah. They may not be right, you know, under, just under, but they might not be that far over because they don't want to pay that speed, that big fine. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Right. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to give up on it. You're still yet. on it. <laughs> That's great. No, I am indeed. But I think the most important thing is to keep. And the and your challenge is now that we've reached this historic level of participation, 
is is to keep people involved and then to build on that and grow from there. Absolutely. That's the only way we're actually going to shift it. It can't be about one election. It has to be about every election. Um, and um, again, there is muscle memory to voting. If you've done it once, you're more likely to do it the next time. And so um, we have to build on the progress um, and make sure we don't sort of fall back. Um, the other thing that I'll say, and there's there's examples of this on the Republican side and the Democratic side, is that good candidates really make a big difference. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, um, right. And, you know, Beto O'Rourke got more Rourke. votes than Hillary Clinton in Texas. That's unbelievable. Um, and, and, you know, in a midterm election. And so you saw enormous turnout there. Like him or not, he inspired millions of Texans uh, that maybe weren't involved before. Um now, there's also millions of Texans that are still aren't registered to vote. So there's a lot of work to be done in a state like that. Um, but good candidate, you know, you have to have organizations like ours that are doing the sort of the foundational work of making sure that folks are registered, that they understand the process, that they understand the importance of it. But then at the end of the day, uh, people do need good candidates to get out there and vote for. And, and also, I think when you talk about young people not turning out, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. uh, youngest woman ever elected to Congress. I think it's important for young people to be in office as well um, and for them to get elected because then young people can see themselves and the people that they're sending uh, down to Washington or whatever state capital or city hall that they're uh, engaging with. I think it's important for more young people to get engaged. Whenweallvote.org is a website, Absolutely. right? People want to f- keep up with, with your work and, yes. and be part of your work. Whenweallvote.org. And... Uh, if you sign up, you get a signed copy of Michelle Obama's new book. Is that right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that will that will be available next week. Oh, that's right. It comes out next week. Oh, I thought I thought maybe that was part of the package, but that's <laughs> too bad. <laughs> um, so, but you mentioning the candidates, like uh, in the the other thing that these candidates do, like Beto O'Rourke, sadly did not make it as uh, to the United States Senate, but uh, he not only brought. That inspired all these people to get involved, increased the voter registration rolls in Texas. But he, I saw uh, last night, we know he picked, there were a couple of congressional seats that flipped in Texas mm-hmm. thanks to him. Absolutely. A friend of mine named Colin Allred, former Obama administration official down outside of Dallas, uh, won. I think he had an, Beto had an enormous impact on Texas statewide uh, with the energy that right. he brought out. And I think I forget how many now state assembly seats also in Texas flipped, uh, and people are giving that credit to Beto O'Rourke because again of uh, more Democrats registering, getting involved, walking precincts, and so it it helped the entire up, up and down fleet the ticket. of candidates up and down will. the ticket. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and you know I think that that those state houses and those state legislatures are just as important, if not more important, for voting laws. By the way. Uh, in those states than federal races. I mean, you know, your your lo- your governor, totally. your secretary of state, your attorney general, your state legislature, those are the people who determine the voting laws in your communities. And so, uh, you know, it's important for folks that care about democracy, that care about voting to be put in those um, because that's going to increase access for folks uh, in a significant way. And that's the only way we're going to be able to significantly increase participation. Right. So this, the, these midterms were really on the level of a presidential year. They were. Correct. They in were. Terms of- um, and I think that, um, you know, it, it was, as you said, the first time in a midterm over 100 million people participated, uh, especially in the states where there were significant races, whether it be Florida or Texas. 
um, there was, you know, almost presidential, if not presidential level turnout. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, I think that's not only good for this election. I think that's actually good for the presidential election because now you've, you've set a high watermark for a midterm. Now it's time to set a high watermark for a presidential election. And, mm-hmm. you know, what can we actually get to um, when you have this type of energy, this type of focus on voting in a midterm? If we put that towards a presidential election, I think you should see even higher turnout. You know, the high watermark in terms of presidential turnout is 2008 uh, when President Obama was uh, coming into office. Uh, and still 80 million people didn't participate that year, which is crazy to think about in that historic election. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got to we got to even beat that. Um, and, and so I think um, we're on course, too, but there's a lot of work left to do. Do you see uh, Barack Obama of 2020? I, I, I don't yet. Um, you know, I didn't, see, I didn't see Barack Obama until um, I was a junior at George Washington University, and I watched him give a speech. It was the Jefferson Jackson dinner speech in Iowa um, in December of 2007. And the day after he won Iowa, I got in my car and drove down to South Carolina and dropped out of college. <laughs> um, and I think that it takes that. I mean, you watched the speech from here. So I watched the speech from here. Read it. And yeah. then I was like, I think I've got to work for this guy. And then he gave his Iowa victory speech on January 3rd. And literally on January 4th, I got in my car and I drove to South Carolina for the primary. <laughs> and I got hooked. I dropped out of college. I worked as an organizer across the country for the Obama campaign. And, um, I think that we need that level of person where it was, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't even think about working in the White House when I went to go work for Barack Obama. It was just, I loved the guy. I loved his message. I was fired up and ready to go. And it's going to take that level of, um, you know, uh, engagement from people around the country who care that much about someone like that to bring us sort of to that level of turnout that we had in 2008 and, and above. I think, you know, people have been talking about Beto a little bit. I think it'd be interesting to see if he got in. Um, uh, I think uh, former vice presidents still uh, still thinking about it. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Big and, secret. <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah, he, he, I will say he did an incredible amount of work in this midterm. I uh, Absolutely. It was, he was all over so the did country. President Obama. President Obama was all over the country. Yeah, they, I'd like to have seen more of him, but they, those last rallies in the last few days were very effective. They did a ton of work. And I think people, when we think about 2008, by the way, one of the important things I think people forget is that Hillary and Obama went to basically all 50 states in the primary. I mean, we, we were, I mm-hmm. went to six. <laughs> um, and I think that that was really important for engagement in our country that year because people who were in South Carolina, who were in Maryland, who are in um, Hawaii, who normally aren't engaged by presidential campaigns, were engaged in that race in 2008 because there was this 50-state primary uh, fight. And I think that had a really important long-term impact on the campaign and actually made our jobs uh, on the campaign in the general election in 2008 easier because there was so much energy that had already come up and bubbled up out there, and you had seen President Obama all around the country already. And so I think, I hope that a strong primary um, in 2020 will have a similar effect of getting people engaged around the country in a significant way. Right. By the way, I saw this morning, I'm not sure, I think it was accurately reported, that Beto work has scheduled some appearances in New Hampshire and Iowa. Already? Yeah, I saw I have something not. on Politico this oh, morning. Oh, man. <laughs> but <laughs> off we go, right? Oh, but, you know, um, I'm a little older than you are, um, but a similar experience, but for me, the catalyst was Eugene McCarthy in 68, my first campaign, 
And it was the excitement, well, the importance, also the excitement of anti-Vietnam War. And here's a senator who was willing to stand up and take on a member of his own party, the president of his own party over the war in Vietnam. Uh, And I quit my job teaching and then quit my, I was well on the way to getting my doctorate at the University of Berkeley and and quit that and just went full-time working for Eugene McCarthy. Yeah. And And, and so a candidate like that. that... can really inspire. And I've said this several times that I, I haven't seen the excitement among young people for a cause uh, as big, as great as it was this year since Eugene McCarthy. I think, you know, that, to me it reminded me the excitement and the energy and uh, of, of those days, right? Yep. Uh, and, of course, Barama, uh, Barack Obama, too. I don't mean to slight that. No, no, no. Yeah. But, but this year... People were really excited overall. Yep. I think. Yeah. But it's it and Donald Trump, thanks to him for part of it. <laughs> I mean, no, I think when I think about, I mean, the energy created in response to to Trump, the Parkland students, and then you know, great candidates and dozens of organizations like ours that were just working it, working it really hard. Um, Absolutely. And what are the issues that really that you found that really did inspire? young people to get involved this time? Well, I think hands down gun violence prevention, you know, there was, that was the central issue, obviously, of young people's organizing and focus. Um, but then actually, the one thing that was heartening about the way that the Parkland students organized was it also became about participation itself. It mm-hmm. became about voting in and of itself. It wasn't about any other one issue. Um, I think you constantly see folks, uh, young people um, uh, focused on education. Um, and college affordability. Right, right. Um, student debt is still an enormous problem in this country, and that's something that's ex- extremely real for people. You know, overall, exa- exit poll showed that the brought people out to vote was health care. Yep. And I, I, I don't know how that relates to you know, people who consider themselves healthy and never. Well, I think know, that young people. Get sick, never need health care, but. Um, no, well, I think I, I'm, I'm curious to see what the age breakdown would be on that. I think um, young people really understand the. You can stay on your parents' plan until you're 26 piece. Um, I think young people really understand the pre-existing condition uh, issue um, because everybody knows somebody. Yeah. Uh, you either have a pre-existing condition or you know somebody who has a pre-existing condition. So I think health care was certainly important for young people as well. Um, but I think gun violence and education were probably at the top of the list. Yeah. And when you expand that, I mean, whoever was in the other day was talking about that that millennials go up to like 35 or 30. Six or something. I mean, it keeps getting. <laughs> uh, I would so it was, I'll tell you. I was the youth liaison for President Obama at the White House, and I turned uh, thirty. So I raised the age uh, of youth oh. to thirty-five, so I could still qualify. <laughs> <laughs> well, I no. I think the way it is right now, you're a millennial <laughs> until you join AARP. Okay, I, good. Good. Nothing, well, I've got a few more years there's, then. No, there's nothing in between, right? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, but so so. Whatever the issue is, I mean, climate change, the environment, right, all of those issues. And I think just sort of civil rights issues generally, um, criminal justice reform uh, was particularly important. I think the fact that, by the way, that you saw 1.5 million folks get their rights restored in oh, Florida. Huge, and that, I, I believe that that got well over 60% of the 64%. Vote. Okay. Right. 64 to 35. Hugely just important. So 1.5 million people. In, yeah. in uh, I believe I saw forty percent of African American men uh, in Florida, yeah. um, and so I think ten percent of the voting population. As we said earlier in the last half hour, if that had been in place, 
Andrew Gillum would be governor. Bill Nelson would be reelected senator. It's really, I mean, it's an incredibly important piece. Now we have to make sure that they're registered and ready to vote. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, congratulations. Thank and you. Thank you for a job well done. And um, and you just charted out, you know, what you've got to do now for the next two and <laughs> exactly. four years. And, we won't be bored. Uh-uh. It's not over until we get up to 100%. Exactly. <laughs> so you had a job forever. <laughs> uh, it, it is, again, when we all vote, a very, very important a movement. Uh, be part of it by going to whenweallvote.org. Kyle Lehman, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me in again. And uh, now we got the Congress. Investigate or cooperate. <laughs> Eliza Collins brings us up to date from USA Today. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Yep, Donald Trump says Tuesday night was a total victory for Republicans. You'd have to be delusional to think that. They lost the House. Hello, everybody. What do you, does Trump know it? What do you say? It is Thursday, November 8th. This is the Bill Press Show. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. And thanks for joining us uh, nationwide, coast to coast, as we come to you on the radio, on television, and online on YouTube.com. Uh, still trying to sort out um, not only what happened, but what it all means and where we go from here and how the political landscape has changed, um, particularly here in the United States Congress, changed dramatically, um, making the job of Eliza Collins at USA Today all the more interesting. Eliza, how are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? I know. Right? Uh, as you walk in, we had some breaking news on another house race uh, that has gone the Democratic way. We started out the show with 223 Democrats, 197, maybe 99, I think it is now, Republicans, uh, and 14 undecided. One more has been decided in Georgia, looks like. Huh? Yes, I saw that um, Karen Handel conceded to Lucy McBath. Now, that one's a really interesting one because that was the first special election after mm. Trump was president. Um, if we remember, Tom Price was nominated to Health and Human Services Secretary. No longer. Right. Uh -huh. But um, it was the first special election. It was They poured millions and millions and millions of dollars. Both sides wanted to prove that they still had it. John um, Ossoff. John Democrat. Ossoff, remember. And he didn't live in the district, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, Heard could him. have cost him. I'm not sure if that was the only thing. But um, it was a red, it's a red district. It is the suburbs of Atlanta. I went down there at the time. And Karen Handel pulled out a victory in the end. Um, so now it's a Democratic seat. It is now a Democratic seat. So she she was a congresswoman for... Two years. Yeah, her. a little bit less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now it has flipped. So that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, we also saw that up in New Jersey, New Jersey's third, uh, Tom MacArthur, Republican, uh, a tight race, but it was also considered that it looked like he was going to be okay. Uh, and now it hasn't been officially called, but the Democrat, Andrew Kim, has declared victory. He's Yeah, that's another interesting one where uh, this is a traditionally Republican seat. Um, Tom MacArthur was ex assumed to be safe for a long time. But he and he had kind of been this centrist Republican. But what a huge mark against him was during the Obamacare repeal in the House, the House Freedom Caucus, so the really conservative group of about three dozen members, said that they were not going to vote for the bill because it was not conservative enough. 
And basically, they threatened to withhold their votes. There was not going to be enough votes. So Tom MacArthur, who was at the time a member of the Tuesday group, which was the moderate group of Republicans, and Mark Meadows sort of hashed out a deal. But the amendment, which they called the MacArthur Amendment, was actually very conservative. I remember mm-hmm. reading it and being like, how did Tom MacArthur put his name on this? And he, his co-colleagues, I guess, in the Tuesday group asked him to leave. They, mm. they, it was not... They felt it was too conservative. Um, so he left the group, or at least he stepped down. He was like one of the top leaders in the Tuesday group, stepped down, and his name was really this part of the Obamacare repeal, and they kept bringing it up because they wanted to prove that it was not a super conservative bill. Look, t- Tom MacArthur supports mm-hmm. it. Well, mm-hmm. it ended up costing Tom MacArthur a seat. Looks like that, right? So um, the, the and by the way, the, so the projection is, as of this morning, that when it all shakes down, Democrats will have 232 members compared to 203 for Republicans, uh, and that's a pickup of 37 seats for Democrats. Uh, that's pretty. That's pretty solid. That's a larger. I mean, there was a long time when people thought, yes, Democrats will take the House, but it'll be by just a few. I mean, that yeah, is yeah. 37 seats is a large margin. They basically picked up most of those toss-ups, and then they picked up seats that they. Real surprises. I mean, New York 11, Staten Island, that was a total surprise. Oklahoma, I believe it was Oklahoma 5. Mm-hmm. And it picked up a fair number of seats in the Midwest, which was a big deal for Democrats. Right. One in Utah, one in Kansas. Uh, yeah, so, so you're, you're right. Some real, in Texas, some real surprises. And they also picked off some members that we had assumed were safe, Tom MacArthur being one. But he that started to get competitive towards the end. Carlos Corbello, that was a seat that should have been should have gone to Democrats, but Carlos Corbello was one of the few Republicans who really did a good job separating himself from the party. He oh, spoke yeah. out at Trump at every turn. He really, was a vocal critic of Donald he Trump. He tried to force an immigration vote. He did a lot of things, and so Republicans felt really good about his chances, and he was wiped out that night, too. So that was a big deal. All right. So uh, step back. The big picture is Donald Trump trying to downplay it yesterday. But what does it mean to have Democrats in control of the House of Representatives? What comes with control? Well, investigations and mm-hmm. the power to subpoena. I mean, the every committee now has a Democrat at the top. They get all the chairmanships. Right. They got all the chairmanships and they have had a lot of questions about Donald Trump and now they can try to get answers. And I don't really know what where those investigations will lead, what will actually happen, because the Senate is now even more Republican. The margin before in the Senate was very tight. It is not going to be that tight. So you know, things will be stopped in the Senate even more so than they used to be. It used to kind of be up to Susan Collins mm-hmm. and Lisa Murkowski. That's not the problem anymore. Um, though for most things, you still do need 60 votes. So to make that clear in the Senate, and Republicans will not have 60 right. votes. Yeah. But for some things, it'll be a lot easier to move things along, like nominations. But yeah. um, back, but in back the to House, the House. Right. Yes. So they can make the president's life pretty miserable. Um and that's really the biggest thing. Right. Uh, and and I, w- I would hope that in context, too, I mean, so they can investigate. They can um, appropriate, of course. They can, yes. This is all part of their job, by right. the way, right? right? This is not right. A, a, a attack mode or warfare. And they can do oversight hearings. 
right? Yes, they can do all of those things. And again, it's their job if they appropriate the money to do oversight to make sure the money is being properly spent, right? And you're right. Now, I remember um, uh, Axios uh, released a memo that they got their hands on where Republicans said, here are 100 things Democrats are going to be looking into uh, if they do get the House. Right. But they were things like, what is EPA doing in gutting all these environmental regulations? You know, what's the f- economic impact of those? I mean, that's a legitimate source of, of oversight, oversight right. I think. What's the Pentagon doing sending 15,000 troops to the border against an invasion or an enemy that kind of a silly 800 miles away, right? I mean, I, I could make that argument. But again, I think that use of uh, that un- extraordinary, unusual use of American troops is a worthy subject of investigation. But the president said yesterday, you either investigate or we're going to cooperate. It's got to be one or the other. Right. And that's that's just not going to happen. And um, even that morning, Mitch McConnell was asked because the president woke up first thing. He said, I think Nancy Pelosi should be speaker. And then pretty quickly after he said, if the House starts to investigate me, the Senate will investigate the House, which Mitch McConnell pretty quickly dismissed. And um, he was asked, you know, if the House is investigating the president, would that make it hard for you to work with Pelosi on something? They keep talking about infrastructure and drug prices. That seems to be sort of the consensus things right now that they when could everyone's work on. feeling yeah. bright-eyed before they all get really mad at each other. They think that those two things they might be able to work on. And McConnell said no. He thinks he could still work with the House on those things, even if they're investigating the president. McConnell, for one, is an institutionalist. And I think he really dislikes when Trump tries to boss the Senate around um, we've seen that when Trump says, let's get rid of the 60 vote filibuster. Yeah. And McConnell says, uh-uh. And so I think something like Trump saying, well, the Senate will just investigate the House. McConnell's like, we're not doing that. How many hearings did uh, between uh, Daryl Issa and Trey Gowdy, how many hearings did the House have on Hillary's emails? Quite a few. <laughs> there was Well, there's a special committee for it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like yeah. maybe 15 or so? I mean, Yeah, I, think, I don't know yeah. the exact... But there were So a uh, my point is, it's kind of chalky for them right now to say, oh, no, well, the they, Democrats they are going to hold hearings. Right. Oh, God. They know that so much that before this happened, I was talking to a top Republican aide, um, and they were, you know, they thought that the House would fall. And the aide told me that they were starting to look into how the Obama administration had dealt with the Republican House and what had been successful and what hadn't been. And they were pointing to the Fast and Furious scandal and trying to get Eric Holder in and Eric Holder refusing to release documents. And he was held in contempt of Congress, but nothing actually happened. And how Eric Holder is now, you know, on this list of potential 2020 candidates is the Republican pointing out to me, we can just, the administration can just ignore the requests from the Democrats, and we have precedent. And so they're they're doing things like that. They were before it flipped, and I imagine even more so now. Because it knows they're going to have to deal with that reality, Yeah, they right? absolutely knew. And they, it, they knew they did it themselves, and so their own, that's their example. But so I just want to come back to where for Donald Trump to claim that this is a complete victory. Tuesday was a total victory for the Republicans. And he also said yesterday, twice, that we're probably better off with Democrats having the House because now we can get things done. I mean, he's nuts, right? 
I mean, no, Trump, no one else would say that ever, but Trump has his unique spin. I mean, we're looking right when Obama, granted, there were more seats lost under Obama, I think, and Trump loves yeah. to compare yeah. to Obama, right. 63, right? But Obama called it a shellacking. When Bush lost a bunch of seats, he called it a thumping. So, like, these were presidents that admitted, you know, they lost seats and yeah. it was a referendum. Trump would never admit that. And so for him, he has to admit victory. Granted, there were certainly victories in the Senate. There is no mm-hmm. denying yeah. Republicans. Uh, totally. And no, it, no. But you give them that. Just don't deny what happened in the right, House. Right. But it was not. <clears throat> they were better off, I would argue, when they had Republicans in both majorities. Right. So one thing the Democrats might want to look into, I want to show you if you haven't seen it. This is a full page ad in today's New York Times. And it says, Democrats, congrats on winning the House. You said you'd get Trump's tax returns. Now it's time. (laughs) The American people deserve to know what Donald Trump is hiding. We deserve to know how much he's profiting off his presidency and who he's beholden to. Um, It should be whom he's beholden to. But at any rate, and this this all these organizations, um, there are two dozen of them for sure. Right. And it's put together by the tax march people. Right. Yeah. But, oh, that's going to be a top priority. But for it Democrats. includes the Campaign for America's Future, the Center for American Progress, Daily Coast, Moms Rising, Tax Justice Network, all these organizations. So my point is tax returns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they've said that. They have said that that is something that they want. Um, there was this can, giant can New they, York Times article. They, can they just demand them or do they have to have you know, an issue where the tax returns would be pertinent to uh, in, an investigation or something, right? Does it have to be a I think it has to be to pertinent, but I think that there are certainly many things that they could connect the need to see tax reform or t- tax, Return. the taxes. Yeah. Um, Republicans did tax reform. The taxes yeah. for, I don't think it would be that hard for them to make some sort of investigative connection. Yeah. For example, if they're looking into the emoluments clause, that would certainly be on the list. Right, right. right. And those are things... Uh, Democrats have tried really hard not to talk about impeachment, um, which I think probably was helpful in a lot of the seats that they won. They won, I mean, let's just think Virginia 7. Abigail Spamberger took out Dave Bratt. That's a huge victory for Democrats. But I went down there. That's a a red district. I think had she been talking about impeachment, it probably would have turned off voters. So they've tried really hard to separate themselves from that. But taxes, emoluments clause, those are things that they have made clear that they want to know about. Uh, as you pointed out yesterday in his news conference, the president, uh, in, in effect, endorsed Nancy Pelosi, said she deserved to be speaker. Um, if she doesn't have enough votes among Democrats, I could lo- line up some votes for her <laughs> among Republicans, which is doubtful. But anyhow, right. uh, I'm, not, that's just sort of the, oh, I'm that's sure Nancy hilarious. said, oh, Mr. President, just shut up. I don't right. need your help, right? Um, but, I know. I don't know. I don't uh, understand Who's going to be the next speaker? That. I think it'll probably be Pelosi. I think Democrats won by a large enough margin um, that she will have the votes. There were certainly Democrats who said that they would not vote for her. I talked to Abigail Spanberger being one of them um, in Virginia 7. But I think that there were enough of them that were – she was not squishy. She said she would not vote for her behind closed doors. She would not vote for her on the floor. But there were enough that were squishy enough that said, I won't vote for her. But if it's a Democrat or a Republican, I'll probably vote for the Democrat. Pelosi knows how to count votes. She's very good at that. And she seems very confident she has them. Also, this was an election about women. 
And I think Democrats would have a hard time taking out the highest ranking woman. So my first question when people say Nancy Mandamekit is who's running against her? That's the other thing. No, right. Tim Ryan who, has like- Who is running against her? No one right now. Right. So you <laughs> you can't beat somebody with nobody. Right, right. And Tim Ryan is, you know, her, her foe, I guess. Um, and he, he's run against her before. He said he hasn't ruled it out. He's talking about it. But- Leadership elections are coming up fast. Pelosi has an incredible whip operation. She is really good behind the scenes. And while she was not out on the campaign trail with a lot of these uh, Democrats, she was certainly helping them raise money, you know, advising. And so a lot of people owe her. More money than ever before. So I had a conversation with a Democratic member from California, um, a conservative, I would say, maybe not conservative, but a moderate Democrat. Okay. Um, who said? Who told me a couple of days ago that he thought uh, the speakership thing would come down to not so much who was running against her, but that a few of them had gotten together and with some proposed changes to House rules. Ah, this, this is the problem. The problem solvers caucus. Exactly. Thing. I remember yes. the problem solvers caucus. And then I pick up uh, an article this morning from our, you know a colleague of yours and friend of our Melanie Zanona at the uh-huh. Hill. A 14 House Democrats vow to withhold speaker votes over rule reforms. So this 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 is what he was talking about, that the problem solvers cards have come up with this. I'm not they're, they sort of like they're inside baseball rules. Yes. But that if if they get what they want on the rules, they'll vote for Nancy Pelosi. Right. So this is really interesting because the problem solvers caucus is a very interesting group in theory. They have done. Are they all Democrats? Nothing. No, it is. It's. Half and half. So I believe at this point there are 48, and you can't join the group unless you have someone in the other party. And oh, you have to come in in a pair, like a buddy, and, buddy right, system. Right, and they're all pretty centrist, and their whole thing was is to like work together um, and come up with proposals for major issues. And they've done that. They did that on health care. They did that on immigration. The problem is none of these have seen the light of day. Mm-hmm. They've they have not been voted on. Um, but they are probably proposals that could pass with bipartisan support or at least have a real chance because they have to have, I think, 70 percent of the group has to approve it before they come out with it as a proposal. So I think in theory it's a really interesting group. I've not seen them use their weight the way the Freedom Caucus has, though we could see that this time around with narrower margins, a more yeah, centrist yeah. Democratic Party. Um, and certainly 14 Dems withholding their vote is enough. Probably we don't know the final margins, but to make a real difference here, but I, I, I'm not sure if they will actually do that. Yeah, I mean, for example, it gets down to you would understand this a lot better than I. I don't, but for example, the package would also grant members a markup on one piece of legislation per session if it has a co-sponsor from the opposite party. I mean, this is something that. The vast, vast, vast majority of Americans are not going to understand. But this goes to the internal workings of the House, which is important to them. They think they get a fair shake by some of these rules. I guess what I'm getting to is that it could be decided, the speakership, on something like this rather than would you rather have Nancy Pelosi or X person. Right, right, especially if it's just Pelosi. (laughs) She'll have to. But there there is a growing movement with younger members, sort of more centrist members of both parties that are really frustrated with the way the place operates. And, you know, we've seen it get further and further from everybody having a say. 
Um, well, certainly in the last two years, I mean, right. Paul Ryan has just said if he doesn't want to bring it up for a vote, and he Paul, won't bring it up for a vote. Look at the dreamers. The dreamers, everybody, Republicans and Democrats told us, you put it up for a vote, it'll pass. Absolutely, yeah. Ryan and, wouldn't put it up for a vote because Donald Trump didn't want him to. Right. And then Ryan came in promising a more open process because people were frustrated under Boehner. So, like, yeah. it has just gotten less and less and less. And so there are a lot of members I've talked to in both parties who are friendly with each other. There's sort of a lot of these, there's a lot of veterans, younger people who kind of come from a different world, aren't necessarily politics, and are like, this is not working. So I do think that there would be an appetite for something like this. I just have yet to see members of the Problem Solvers group actually throw their weight around in a way that allows them to decide what happens. And I, I, I take this for granted. I just want to double check with you. I mean, we can we can sort of assume that Mitch McConnell remains as yeah. there's no challenge yeah, to him. Yeah, especially, I mean, damn, Republicans are are thrilled with him right now, right? He no, expanded their majority. He got yeah. Kavanaugh. On. McConnell is a amazing strategist. In the same way, Republicans will concede that Nancy Pelosi is an amazing strategist, mm-hmm. and so those are likely going to be the two leaders. Uh, if they're, uh, you know, the president again dancing around yesterday, saying if they they dare hold one hearing, you know, based, you know, we're not going to cooperate with them. Which could be, and I think probably is, just bluster because the president also prides himself on liking to make deals. Um, and we know the famous one deal that he made with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. So uh, in the face of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, uh, I think he'll be ready to make some deals on some issues. What are the issues where you think there's, we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate, but at least between the House and the Trump White House, where they might be able to come to some agreements. Well, I think what Pelosi said, infrastructure, drug prices, um, I think those are absolutely very fair game. They're low-hanging fruit. I mean, they should be able to do those. Uh, I think Republicans really felt the heat on health care this election. I think this election was about health care. They they could do something on pre-existing conditions, just reaffirm it. shoring up. But I do have a a question. It's 2018— 2020 is a presidential election. Are Democrats going to want to work with the president and give him a win before an election? I don't know. But I imagine there's less of an appetite to give Trump a bipartisan win. It's a lot easier to make him look like he's... uh, 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 Let me... I think maybe. If it's a good deal, I think yes. But then there are, I'm sure, will be Republicans in the Senate who don't want to give Democrats... Yes. A good deal before 2020. Right. So who will shoot it down? Right. I think that 2020, it started yesterday. I mean, it was already started. But we now have to think about that with every, you know, can Democrats in the Senate, there are certainly a lot of them that are thinking about running. Mm-hmm. Will they get deals? Will McConnell allow them to get wins? Um, will their colleagues, especially ones that are close to the president, allow them to get wins? Uh, it's funny. When we talk about the Senate— um, we often think about the Senate. The Senate is a smaller body. It's a more deliberate body. It's where things kind of slow down so they can, right. The, and, the saucer with the hot tea is how they say it. Uh, well, sort of, okay. The phrase, the original phrase, That's uh, that, you're right on point. And by the way, uh, okay, I want to point out, I did not know who was the original source of that quote until this morning. So if you don't, that's fine. But the original phrase was, we pour legislation into the Senate saucer to cool it. We pour legislation into the Senate saucer to cool it. Who said that? How far back does it go? 
Oh, I have no idea. Peter? No clue. George Washington. Really? Come on, really? George Washington, yes. And I think that often that is that. I always thought it was Ben Franklin, to tell the truth. It sounds sort of Franklin-esque, but. The cooling saucer. Yeah. Goes all the way back our nation's history. Right. So, uh, and not always for good or bad, but I do think in this, the system has worked that way for a while, right? Absolutely. That you have one red hot, like, ball mine, they passed all these bills just to pass bills. Oh, yeah. And the Senate said, Uh -uh. Right. They wouldn't take up a lot of them. I mean, look at, because the way the Senate works, and we'll see for how much longer with 60 votes, they have to, even with Republicans expanding their majority, even if they get 55, they still need five Democrats. Mm -hmm. I mean, that... Yeah. That makes compromise. Well, for sure. The landscape has changed. Uh, the The whole possibility of getting things done has changed. And um, it's going, It's a new reality. Somebody said the law of gravity has reasserted itself in the United States Congress. <laughs> Democrats uh, are certainly happy. And about. checks and balances <laughs> are back. Hey, Liza, it's great to see you. Good Thank to you. be USA here. USAToday.com, uh, uh, Liza Collins. Have a great Thursday, this folks. We'll be here tomorrow looking for show. you.